We all can relate that when we don't sleep well or when we eat at the wrong time, then we can feel the consequences right away. It's not a disease, but it is a discomfort. When it continues for many weeks or months, then that can increase our risk for disease. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep and alignment facts nuance and trustworthy recommendations minus the hyperbole howdy friends great to be here with you i hope that you've been keeping well i'm your host simon hill i'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition in today's episode i sit down with professor sachin panda one of the world's leading experts interested in circadian rhythms to dive a little deeper into circadian biology and how we can use our understanding of body clocks to shift our health in a favorable direction. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I recently had Emily Manoogian and Courtney Peterson on to discuss time-restricted eating, a method of eating usually used to describe eating within an 8 to 12-hour eating window. Today's conversation with Sachin builds on this, with many important components of circadian biology re-emphasized and plenty of new questions explored. I'm incredibly thankful to Sachin for helping us continue to explore this topic of circadian biology and believe within this conversation there are several bits of information we can use to modify our lifestyles, nurture our circadian rhythms, and improve our health. Please enjoy. This is me and Sachin Panda. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, 
taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. Panda, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Happy to be here. I've had a, a couple of episodes on fasting now. You and I were just speaking about those. Uh, one with Emily Manugian and, and then a second one recently with Emily and Courtney Peterson. And since those episodes, I've received many questions from the community about time-restricted eating, uh, how fasting works, and, and optimizing a, a fasting protocol that I'd like to to sort of throw around with you today to to sort of make sense of much of this conversation. Let's perhaps start with a, a refresher on what circadian rhythms are and and why they exist. Yeah, so circadian rhythms are daily timetable of when. Um, nearly thousands, thousands of genes in our genome turn on and off at different time of the day. And the reason why they're there is for the last 200,000 years, we humans have been living on this planet with predictable changes in sunrise and sunset, the availability of light, uh, the change in temperature and food, so that's why we have been designed to adapt to that changing environment. And mm-hmm. when we dig deep, what we find is circadian rhythms essentially optimize our physiology, behavior, and metabolism for every hour of this 24 hours day-night cycle. Right. So as we're going about our day, these circadian rhythms are controlling our physiology and metabolism. Can you give some examples? Of what, are, what are some of the things that are kind of happening in our body at different time points and, and how is that sort of uh, helping us do what we need to do throughout the day? Yeah, so for example, if you were lucky enough to go to bed around 10 o'clock at night, then after around seven to eight hours, around say eight, uh, you're supposed to wake up at six o'clock but your body, your circadian clock actually prepares your body to wake up. So your breathing mm-hmm. becomes a little faster. Your heart begins to pump a little bit extra. And then your sleep hormone melatonin begins to go down so that by the time you wake up, you feel fully energetic and ready to roll. Just mm-hmm. imagine when you set an alarm uh, and try to wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to catch a flight or to do something, um, you actually wake up feeling groggy, even if you tried to sleep a little early because your clock right. did not allow you to prepare mm-hmm. for the day. Mm-hmm. So that's starting from the beginning, from the day, um, beginning of the day. And then after waking up within 45 minutes to an hour, your stress hormone cortisol begin to rise and reaches its peak. And that means you are even more ready after waking up to do more physical activity and get ready for the day. Then your bowel movement is most likely in the morning because that's what your clock is uh, instructing our gut to get rid of the toxins. And then your insulin-producing cells are actually primed so that you can 
eat your big breakfast and digest that food, absorb that mm-hmm. nutrient without raising your insulin uh, glucose level too high. So these are just the examples. Even in the morning, within, la- within the first two hours, you can see so many things happening. Mm-hmm. And so when we're born, are we kind of just born with these clocks, like a clock that affects, say, melatonin and, and cortisol, a clock that's affecting bowel movements? And, and how do, do sort of external things like cues, like the, the light that exposure that we're getting or the timing of our meals, how do those affect those clocks and, and potentially lead to sort of dysregulation? Yeah, so we all are born with the same clocks um, around 24-hour rhythms. But then when babies are born, the clock is not completely wired to the rest of the body. And the reason is babies are also growing really fast. So they need to eat in every three to four hours um, to support their rapid growth. So for the first six months to a year, um, their physiology metabolism is not completely wired. And this is a this is an example where, you know, if we have the same kind of um, unwired clock, then half of us would be crying and half would be hungry now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but slowly, uh, the clocks get synchronized and our brain clock gets more connected to the organ clocks. And then we have uh, much better rhythms in daily physiology, metabolism and behavior. Now, the second mm-hmm. question that you asked is, how do light and food get into these uh, rhythms? As, you, as we all experience with the change in season, when we go from summer to winter or winter to summer, the day length changes. And so that if we're in the wild, we cannot just afford to wake up at six o'clock every day because sometimes in winter, it may be too dark outside and in summer, it may be too late in the morning. Um, so that's why our clocks are wired to synchronize with the outside world, uh, primarily through two different mechanisms. One is through light, so that as the day length changes, the first ray of light and the bright light in the morning can reset our clock to so that our, we are in sync with the day-night cycle. Um, so, for example, in very northern latitude, from day to day, there can be differences of eight to 10 minutes in sunrise time. And that's why we are wired. We have specialized cells in our retina called melanopsin cells. They sense blue light and daylight or sunlight is a very rich source of blue light. And that's how we adjust our clock to different seasons. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing is as our ancestors, hunter-gatherers woke up, when you are awake, we want to go find food after a few hours of waking up. So um, the clocks in our body, they also sense when the meal is coming because not only we have to anticipate when the sun rises and where to wake up, if we know when the meal is likely to come, then our digestive system also gets primed for that time. So that's why when we eat also... Uh, synchronizes our clock uh, and essentially tells us this is the time when you should expect food. So those are the two major mechanisms. Are there any other external cues that sort of have the potential to impact 
these circadian clocks other than light exposure and the time that we eat our food? There are other mechanisms. For example, when we exercise can affect our clock. Um, But in face of light and food, all these other cues are a little uh, not that powerful. But still, Mm -hmm. we should keep those in mind so that we can use them when Mm -hmm. we cannot use light and food. And so what's what's the problem, uh, Sachin, with circadian disruption? So if these these clocks are a little bit out of whack, why yeah. is that a, a problem from a, a physiological point of view and from a, a health point of view? And and for for a listener that's thinking, um, you know, how would that kind of present? How would that affect them in terms of how they feel or potentially their sort of long term health? Yeah, so just imagine if you're going to, if you have an eight to five job and um, some days, and if you are the boss and some days some of your employees, uh, they show up at uh, 7.30 and then some days they can show up at 10 uh, or they just randomly show up in the evening. Um, They may be working hard, but then when it comes to promotion time, you may not give them a raise because they're not sticking to Mm -hmm. time. The reason is your office is also connected to the outside world through shipping, receiving, all the other stuff. So similarly, a body is wired, programmed to do certain things at certain time. And when we don't do, when our behaviors are not in alignment with what our body is programmed to do, um, you may not feel, I mean, you may not see the consequences right away. Um, but over long term, it essentially compromises our physiology, we may not be able to digest our food properly or we may not be able to control our blood sugar properly. So over days, months or years, that can slowly show up as, for example, diabetes, obesity, metabolic disease. Uh, At the same time, our clocks in our immune system also uh, make sure that we mount very strong immune reaction when we are supposed to see pathogens, which are mostly during daytime or in the evening. And at other time, the inflammation should subside, should go down when we are resting. Um, so when our circadian rhythms are disrupted, then our immune system doesn't see that um, resting time or rejuvenation time. So we stay with chronic inflammation and our risk for cancer and certain other diseases can go up. Similarly, our circadian rhythm also has downtime for our brain to repair, reset and rejuvenate and detoxify. And if we don't sleep properly or if you don't sleep enough or if we have fragmented sleep, then our brain cannot repair itself. And then we can end up with affective disorder, depression, anxiety, panic attack, etc., all the way to even our risk for Alzheimer's disease or dementia can also go up. Mm -hmm. So it really does have the, the capacity to affect many aspects of our health from the sounds of it. Do you have a, a sense as to how um, important circadian biology is to our health, sort of relative to some of the other big rocks that people talk about, like the types of food that we eat or um, doing exercise or smoking or drinking alcohol, you know, how important is kind of nurturing these circadian rhythms in the big picture? Well, it's really hard to say. For example, smoking and <laughs> circadian rhythm health, um, are difficult to compare. So 
Now, if you think about circadian rhythms, it's actually an umbrella. It's an integrating mechanism to integrate sleep, physical activity, um, good nutrition, all of them together. For example, mm-hmm. if we don't sleep well, then our brain doesn't work properly to decide what to eat or how much to eat. So we end up eating energy-dense diet or we end up overeating. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think of, um, managing our nutrition, you may try to manage your nutrition, but if you are not sleeping well, or if you're staying awake late into the night, then your brain may be confused. It will actually make you that extra hungry to reach for that extra food. So similarly, when it comes to exercise, um, if it's a very simple example if we haven't slept well and if we haven't eaten properly and if our digestive system hasn't digested our food properly it will be really hard to hit that treadmill and stay on that treadmill for 60 minutes or to go for a long run or to lift weight or whatever exercise you are doing so that's why um the three foundations of health that's sleep nutrition and physical activity Mm-hmm. um they are directly or indirectly controlled by the clock the clock tells mm-hmm. us when to sleep and how much to sleep the clock also makes us to be hungry and to be less hungry at night it actually controls our appetite and satiety signal and it also um makes us uh it also primes our body to do better physical activity and gain best for our buck in terms of exercise mm-hmm. if we exercise in the late afternoon so in that way this is this combines all these pillars of health that we know of so when we fix our circadian rhythm then everything else falls into its right place it becomes much mm-hmm. easier to pay attention to nutrition activity and mm-hmm. sleep very well said so all of these things are clearly very much linked and and sort of reliant on one another uh, in some capacity. I'm interested in the kind of origin story of your research. So I want to talk about some of the early studies that that you did. Um, but what what was the kind of science that informed your hypotheses that led to your early research? How long have have scientists been thinking about circadian biology and its its relation to to human health? Yeah, so the circadian rhythms, um, the point is we have been living with circadian rhythms for last 200,000 years, ever since human uh, started moving on this planet. But only in the last 50 years, we woke up to its importance uh, because there is a lot of circadian rhythm disruption in our society. And people knew about the bad effect or adverse effect of disrupting our circadian rhythm and sleep. Uh, for a very long time, actually, because at the beginning of Industrial Revolution, uh, for example, in the UK, women and children were not allowed to do shift work. And one reason was they suspected that shift work might disrupt our body's control mechanism and they may succumb to some disease. Mm -hmm. In the 20th century, this is, um, again, circadian rhythm is a field in biomedicine research, which is not linked to any disease to begin with. So for example, cancer research started to cure cancer, heart disease or cardiology started to treat uh, heart disease. 
but circadian rhythm actually started as a very basic curiosity about why our body keeps track of time and what became very clear was as people studied shift worker more and more who do night shift work day shift work and they have disrupted sleep they cannot eat um, or sleep at the right time uh, it became very clear that the shift workers are at a very high risk for many chronic diseases starting from obesity diabetes to colon cancer um to dementia um but at the same time it was not clear whether the shift workers who work at night um they also don't have access to healthy diet they may have other problems uh but i think the turning point was when the genomes were sequenced and we started studying how genes function and uh people started using modern tools it became very clear that almost our entire genome turns on and off at different time of the day and night mm-hmm. and second it also became clear that many genes that are known to cause disease they also have a circadian rhythm so that means uh the genes are primed to do certain things at a certain time and maybe when they're turning on and off at the right, wrong time as in case of circadian rhythm disruption among shift workers that can mm-hmm. cause disease and people started mm-hmm. studying this in in control condition in laboratory and they found that that hypothesis is right uh, circadian disruption causes disease now you might ask what is circadian rhythm disruption it is is it only for people who do night shift work um so what is now clear is uh if we think of shift work as a form of circadian rhythm disruption then what is the definition of that disruption and uh it's now defined as staying awake for 2 to 3 hours between 10 pm and 5 am for 50 days in a year so that means mm-hmm. at least once a week if someone is staying up late and working on something then that person is likely to be exposed to a lot of light at night that disrupts our circadian rhythm and may have to wake up early in the morning to catch up with uh, other societal commitments mm-hmm. and why this 2 hours to 3 hours because when we stay awake for 2 to 3 hours one night extra then it takes us a body's clock needs 2 to 3 days to catch up to that lost time so mm-hmm. as a result for half of the week one may be working against the clock mm-hmm. so now if we use that definition almost all high school students all college students many young adults almost um, every new mothers or anyone who is caring for someone else is going through circadian rhythm disruption and also we should not forget nearly one in five working adults in industrial countries also work in night shift evening shift or morning shift and they are also going through circadian disruption so that's why almost everybody goes through this kind of disruption and also we all can relate that when we don't sleep well or when we eat at the wrong time then we can feel the consequences right away it's not a disease but it is a discomfort when it continues for many weeks or months then that can increase our risk for disease 
I was going to ask you about that, about <clears throat> whether it's been assessed, how many people meet that criteria. So I'm glad that you, you touched on that. So where are we going wrong then? If, if that many people are suffering from circadian disruption per that definition of um, being awake for two to three hours uh, overnight for 50 nights a year, if I heard that correctly, is it, is it artificial light? Um, is it the timing of our meals? And how, how has that kind of been established within the, the field of science looking at this? Well, I think this is where we have to look at the society and then why people do this. One is at least 20% of people are card-carrying shift workers. So they, they are the um, you know doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, drivers, engineers, airline pilots, and uh, they're essential workers. We call them sure. essential workers, but they... So we cannot um, live without them. Mm-hmm. And... As we're going more and more towards a 24 hours on society, then there is pressure on a lot of people to adopt that lifestyle. And when we say someone is working as a shift worker, there is also a lot of second-hand, second-hand shift work. So, for example, someone's spouse may be staying right. awake late into the night to give company to somebody's dinner or breakfast or meal or staying awake to give company just to watch a late-night movie. Uh, similarly, children, when they are catching up with their... And then some of it is institutionalized. Um, so secondhand shift work may account for another 10 to 20% of the population. And then uh, when I say institutionalized, uh, for example, during COVID, as we moved into digital learning, one thing that happened was in many of the digital learning platform, the deadline for submitting your homework became midnight because that's the end of the day in mm-hmm. digital learning platforms. So now if you look at in many U.S. universities and high schools, the deadline to submit your homework has become midnight instead of 5 p.m. or 3 p.m. that used to be. So now kids are more likely to stay awake, try to finish their homework, try to finish. So the end of that day has become midnight. Right. Then we got to ask another societal need, a personal need. One thing is the reason why we say in the evening we wind down because in the daytime, whatever we do, that's for, for our living. Some, most of us actually don't like the work that we do. So that's why we want to come home, have a nice meal, and then unwind. So that means we want to feel free. We want to be creative because the cradle of civilization actually started with fireside chat, with that evening thought that's very free for being um, people Mm -hmm. who are creative. And we want to do that. We all want to do that. We all want to check news. We want to see the late night show. So as our days became longer and we're spending more time for work, uh, we are also pushing um, into our sleep. We are spending more time uh, entertaining Mm -hmm. ourselves, uh, relaxing. So, as a result, only in the last maybe 30 to 40 years, almost everybody is feeling this pressure to, and it has almost become a norm to break your circadian rhythm and do more. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we are also seeing that the fraction of people who are suffering from chronic disease is going up. You might think that as we are becoming more modern, we are 
food chain is more secure. We have more safely produced food and we have a lot of medications, vitamins, supplements. We may be healthier, but we are not. And I would say that that partly um, the circadian rhythm disrupts and maybe something to blame. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, the field is so new that there is not much epidemiological study um, carefully done to see uh, whether that's true or how much is the contribution. But this is where I put my money, I would say, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. to this this accounts for a lot of increase in the risk factor for chronic disease. Your point about um, doing work that we don't or we potentially don't love or enjoy is a really interesting one and, and the sort of knock-on effect that that could have in terms of eating into our sleep. Um, I guess it, it sort of stresses the importance there about trying to find some sort of occupation or job that we do actually enjoy um i understand that's not always uh possible but um it's a it's a kind of nice goal can we just take one step back you mentioned the early studies that confirmed and these were like the the sort of experiments that were conducted i believe most of this was animal research at that stage that confirmed that circadian disruption can negatively affect health at a sort of high level um i know that you've conducted studies in that space um, what what are the sort of um, most interesting findings that you've seen? Yeah, so uh, even in humans also, there are some very interesting findings. Of course, we cannot um, make people stay awake or reduce their sleep for months or years. Um, but what was really interesting to see was when healthy people who have normal blood glucose and not diabetic, if we reduce their sleep by two to three hours, in not we, I mean, in the community, some you know, other people who did these experiments. Then within within a week or two, these healthy um, adults would develop telltale sign of pre-diabetes. Uh, similarly, circadian disruption by rapidly changing or simulating uh, jet lag kind of experiments in animals without changing how much they eat, or without changing the room temperature, without changing any condition within the within the vivarium or animal holding uh, rooms, people found that they became more and more susceptible to infectious disease. So, so the tiny bit of bacteria that usually the body could fight, now the same amount of bacteria could prove lethal for many of the animals. Then... The control studies also showed that when animals eat randomly throughout their night, then experimental tumors grow much more rapidly than when the animals actually eat within a consistent time window every day. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, even um, feeding animals within a consistent time window shrunk the tumor. Um, so these mm-hmm. are some of the very fascinating studies that connected circadian rhythm disruption uh, correcting circadian rhythm, what are the kind of health impacts it can have? I want to come to, to time-restricted eating and this idea of sort of concentrating your calories within a, 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 a sort of more restricted number of hours over the day compared to the typical um, person and the potential benefits of that and some of the mechanisms that might be at play. Before we do that, just to kind of close the loop while we're talking about just circadian disruption in general and the negative effects of not sleeping as as long as we should um, be. What tips would you have 
for someone with regards to light exposure, um, given that that's the other sort of main external cue we're talking about here. What are some of the things that that you do at home, perhaps Sachin, or you advice that you would give a, a friend if they asked you this question? Yeah, so light at night. Um, uh, so there are two aspects to it. When when we talk about circadian rhythm, it's always timing matters. So the, so timing can make good light junk or the junk light good. Uh, so in that sense, we need bright light during daytime. Everybody needs that. Um, and we should go out and get some daylight. But as the evening rolls in, um, two to three hours before we go to bed, our body actually prepares to go to sleep. So even if we are not ready, our body starts the preparation by secreting a little bit more melatonin and cooling us down and reducing our alertness so that we can fall into sleep. But when we get exposed to bright light, when I say bright light, it's um, it's 1,000 lux of light. uh, If you want to know what is that light like, if you go to any uh, grocery store these days, almost anywhere in the world, grocery stores and drugstores are very bright these days. So as you walk in within 15 to 20 minutes, that amount of light can reduce your melatonin level. Mm. Mm. And one thing is, as we are remodeling our uh, houses, we are putting more and more bright LED light and that's affecting our circadian rhythm. So the rule of thumb is don't put anything more than 40 watts of light in your living room or in your bedroom. Bedroom can be even dim. And when you are trying to change light switches, even go for the dimming switch so that you can dim down your light. Mm. Okay. Uh, so no bright light, at least for two to three hours before your bedtime will help you uh, to go to sleep. And also in our bedroom, there are a lot of um, electronics that can emit light, the indicators. So if you're sensitive to that, then try to even have a uh, eye mask or sleeping mask handy. <laughs> so if you cannot control light, then at least... Mm-hmm. Get some darkness. And then in the daytime, of course, try to be outside for at least 30 minutes under bright daylight. You don't have to be under sunlight, but even on a cloudy day, being outside for 30 minutes is pretty good to resynchronize your circadian rhythm with the day-night cycle. Right. Yeah, I wonder if uh, maybe grocery stores and pharmacies after a certain time, like 6.30, 7pm, whether the, the lights in those stores should potentially change. Should they be should they be a little dimmer later at night? Well, so that's what I say, that the, the knowledge about light is actually used to keep the shoppers awake and alert so that they can spend more time <laughs> buying stuff and also keep their employees awake so that they don't right. fall sure. asleep. Yes, yeah. You're not buying a lot of food if you're asleep. Um, that's a little counterintuitive uh, for their shareholders. But um, also that makes me think when we're, when we're thinking about pharmacies, um, Sachin, what about if I just decide to hack my way to sleep and, and you mentioned melatonin there. Let's say I'm a university student. I'm up all night, lots of bright light, but I buy a melatonin supplement. Can I just do that? And is that a way of uh, being able to stay awake for a, a long period of time and get the deep rest that I need? 
Yeah, so that's a tricky question because you're trying to hack <laughs> by popping a lot of melatonin when our body actually doesn't produce it. Uh, for example, during the daytime. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there are actually conditions uh, in which the body does that naturally, where there is a genetic condition where these patients they produce a lot of melatonin during daytime and less at night. And as a result, these kids, they stay up all night uh, feeling lonely and have some affective disorder. And then during daytime, they're also very sleepy and they're cranky. The trouble with um, uh, this approach is popping melatonin during daytime is not going to reset your clock. It's just trying to make you sleepy. But at the same time, a body's clock is telling our brain that it's not the time to sleep. So one may not get that restorative sleep. So for example, it's very difficult to be in bed continuously for six to eight hours during the day. And many of us who have tried it, it's very difficult because you, even if you have gone through an entire night of staying awake, you may sleep for two to three hours and then you wake up and then it's hard to fall back asleep because the rest of the body is on that clock. So it's not the best idea, but once in a while, if someone is trying, then it may be okay. Um, I must also say that melatonin doesn't only make your brain to sleep. It also has some effect on pancreas clock and our ability to maintain blood glucose level. So during daytime, when we are supposed to eat, having high level of melatonin is not good for glucose control. In fact, our blood glucose level may remain high as if we are pre-diabetic or diabetic. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, 
and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So probably best for us to just sort of, I guess, uh, stick to the, the, the night, night and day kind of um, cycle that our ancestors would have had as best as possible and get out of the way a bit now and, and our body will take care of things like melatonin and, and cortisol probably much better than we would through supplementing. Yeah. Let's let's slide over to to time restricted eating. So I'm interested in where this kind of enters this conversation with regards to our circadian biology. Uh, how what a how many hours across the day does the average person right now, say in America, eat, and how is this uh, affecting circadian biology? Yeah. So the concept of uh, eating within a certain hours. It relates to circadian biology in many different ways. One is our digestive system is primed to um, digest. So the overall idea is just like our brain can stay awake during daytime, solve complex math, and then wants to sleep at night to repair, reset, and rejuvenate. Almost every organ in our body also has a peak time when it can perform much better and need some downtime to repair, reset, rejuvenate. That's the overarching principle. So now if we look at every single aspect of our digestive system, you know, um, when we eat something, it has to be digested in our stomach and there has to be a lot of acid secretion and then digestive juice, all the enzymes have to be secreted so that the food gets digested. It takes almost five hours to digest a good-sized meal uh, for example, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. So now, um, let's start our math from the from the night time. Suppose say one eats around say eight o'clock at night. Although we finish eating at eight by eight eight fifteen, a stomach continues to work for the next five hours to digest that food. So that means around one o'clock or one thirty in the morning. That's when the stomach is finally getting some downtime to go to go to repair, reset, and rejuvenate. Right. And our stomach lining um, needs to repair nearly 7 to 10% of the cells that line the stomach. So there's a good amount of repair that happens. Mm-hmm. And then um, our, our lower, lower intestine, uh, the food moves in our digestive system because of this peristaltic action because the uh, the muscles contract and expand, so that's how the move when the food moves. Uh, but that action also slows down and also almost stops because the intestine needs to sleep. 
so as a result the food actually doesn't move much um so some of you, some of us who when we eat late at night next day we feel like the food is not digested and it's not just a feeling actually the food doesn't get digested properly because the peristaltic movements stops so now uh, if we think that your stomach just like our brain needs 7 to 8 hours of downtime to repair so that means if you eat at 8 o'clock and if your stomach gets a break at 1 o'clock in the morning for the next 7 to 8 hours it needs that downtime so that it can repair itself then one should not eat until at least 9 o'clock in the morning next day so that's the simple math just for the just from the stomach point of view and there are many other uh there are many other aspects of our uh, digestion nutrient accum- uh, assimilation and that essentially tell us that we should be eating uh for no more than 12 hours in a day because we need that 5 hours of digestion after the last meal and then 7 to 8 hours of repair and rejuvenation to be ready for the next day mm. and how how long is the average person currently eating over what's a typical eating window if you were just to go and grab the average american yeah so another point is we don't eat the same at the exact same time every day So for example I'll give you an example and you can actually give me the answer I'll give, give you some example and then ask you a question so for example suppose say I eat today I eat my breakfast at 6 in the morning tomorrow it will be 6:15 day after tomorrow it's 5:45 another day maybe 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock and um if somebody asks you hey Simon uh, when does Sachin actually typically eats breakfast or when does his circadian system is expects to eat food then the answer would be around 6 o'clock um because one day maybe i ate at 5:45 but usually around 6 o'clock 6:15 6:30 so now if we do the same math and then take two weeks of food data from somebody and then ask what is the probable time window in which this person is likely to eat 90 plus percent of its meal then the number that we get is 14 hours 45 minutes so nearly half of the mm-hmm. adults in the US who are not doing shift work because for shift workers it's even worse um nearly 50% of adults eat for 14 hours 45 minutes or longer mm-hmm. less than 10% of people actually eat consistently within 12 hours or less so that mm-hmm. means there is room for improvement for almost all of us <laughs> to improve our health just by paying attention to when we eat or when we stop eating right and you you said it takes about 5 hours to sort of digest the last meal that you have at the end of the day and then after that you need about 7 to 8 hours to to kind of get that repair process happening um can you just define a little bit deeper what what repair means is this where things like autophagy i often see sort of brought into this conversation um is this where processes like that sort of come in yeah so there are many types of repair um so let's start with the gut because during during the day we eat a lot of different stuff and then there is also uh, enzymes and acids that are secreted and we damage nearly 8 to 10% of our stomach lining and you can think of this as the uh, your 
highway or the road or you can think of the cobblestone road where you take out 8 to 10% of the stones every day and they have to be repaired they have to be physically replaced and the way that happens is growth hormone from our pineal gland is secreted and actually the secretion goes up with two signals one is fasting and second is our, our deep sleep mm-hmm. so if we haven't eaten for several hours and if we're in our deep sleep then the growth hormone is secreted that gives a signal to the stomach lining to divide and replace these damaged cells or, or dead cells and this is a very uh, relatable repair process that we can think of and similarly in the brain when we sleep then many of our um, uh, toxins brain toxins that do get secreted into the outside of the cell is almost like taking the trash can out and leaving it outside for the for the uh, for the truck to come and pick it up so that also happens so that's like taking the toxin really literally out of the body mm-hmm. and you also mentioned autophagy and autophagy also occurs after several hours of fasting so that's internal almost like recycling process within the cell so all mm-hmm. three types of repair where you are recycling within the cell taking the trash out outside the cell and even replacing the entire cell when it is damaged all these three types of repairs happen uh, during our fasting plus sleep time mm-hmm. and so you said we we should aim for at least 12 hours of period without fasting. food right yeah. Yeah. um so what would you if we were to kind of just at this point before we keep going, if, if we were to kind of define what you think is the optimal eating window and, and sort of translate that into what that looks like in, in the standard person's um, daily life, so not a shift worker, just a standard person, what would that look like in terms of um, the time that someone, say, wakes up, their breakfast, lunch, dinner, and bedtime? Yeah, so let's start with the bedtime because your next day actually begins with when you go to bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so try to be consistent in going to bed and then try to be in bed for eight hours so that you can get seven hours of sleep and then after waking up one should wait for at least an hour or two before eating anything with calories because mm-hmm. that's the time when our sleep hormone melatonin goes down and our cortisol rapidly rises and reaches its peak and then slowly adjusts its, itself. And um, our insulin function, our insulin secretion is adversely affected by both processes, insulin, uh, sorry, by melatonin as well as high level of cortisol. So that's why one should avoid food for one to two hours in the morning. And then have your breakfast at a consistent time because since our clocks get synchronized with each other and with the outside world um, by two signals, light and food. And actually over the last five to 10 years, what we are seeing is food is a much more stronger signal for all our peripheral organs than light. Light is a very good signal from for brain, but food is very strong for the rest of our body. So, um, mm-hmm. so eat your breakfast, the first meal, Uh, that has calories at a consistent time and then try to eat all your meals in the next 
eight, 10, or maximum 12 hours. And in most of our clinical studies, we target 10 hours because eight hours is a little bit difficult for long-term compliance. If somebody can do eight hours for a month, two or three, that's fine. But many of us cannot do it for, uh, for our rest of our life. So mm-hmm. it's a good goal to have 10 hours so that okay. once in a while you can eat within eight hours. And once in a while, if you, if you cannot and go towards 11 or 12, you are not actually breaking, mm-hmm. uh, not doing too much damage. So that's why 10 hours is an ideal target. So an example of that could be 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. That, yeah, that might work to well. Yeah. Um, okay, I've got a couple questions on, on a few things there. So one that comes up and a lot of people sent me this, Sachin, was, okay, within that fasting period in the morning before you have that first meal, would things like supplements or medications or tea, coffee, let's say black coffee, um, would they be permitted within that? I mean, no one's no one's watching, but I'm thinking from a biological yeah. point of view. Um, yeah. are they are they going to interrupt these biological repair mechanisms that you mentioned, or would they be okay to have in that fasting period? So again, this is a question that we cannot do any clinical trial or systematic study, even in animals. We cannot feed animal coffee every day before we right. give them milk. But this is where we got to use some common sense and uh, arrive at. So there are many medications that need to be taken with empty stomach. So so people should continue to take those in empty stomach. Best example is thyroid medication. Uh, people right. who are taking levothyroxine that should be taken in empty stomach in the morning. So that's fine. Sure. Uh, where it kind of becomes gray on is coffee, coffee with a little bit of people will say, I just put half a teaspoon of sugar or a little bit of cream just to make it palatable. And um, one thing is it, it relates to what is your goal. If your goal is to lose weight or maintain your blood glucose level, uh, then maybe a mild coffee or tea is is okay. So that's why we say there are three exceptions to the rule. One is if your job depends on it. Uh, for example, there are a lot of shift workers. They have to wake up early in the morning. They have the morning shift. They have to uh, be fully alert. And for them, tea or coffee is kind of um, <laughs> having a job or no job. For example, if you're a TV presenter, you have to be awake. Second is uh, for public safety. You should not be driving on the road uh, sleepy, it's better to mm-hmm. be a little bit caffeinated. And then the third one is if you really cannot function without coffee, that's the only love in your life, then you can have it. But here is the um, thing, how it affects. So there are a lot of people who cannot drink strong coffee or tea for long term in empty stomach because that can lead to acid reflux um, or even panic or anxiety attack because they just the body cannot tolerate this strong coffee. So if you're one of them, then um, try to see whether you can reduce your caffeine dose or if you can delay that for an hour or two and have it after breakfast. In fact, in many, in Turkey, uh, the literal meaning of breakfast means the meal uh, meal before coffee because Mm -hmm. a lot of people can have acid reflux in empty stomach. Now let's come back to the physiology and see what is breaking a fast or what affects your um, body so that 
your insulin production and everything else begins to start. So if you take me and drain all of my blood and figure out how much blood sugar I have, then uh, the official blood sugar level for somebody healthy is it should be less than 100 milligram per 100 milliliter. Mm. So that means if you find five liters of blood, that is the average blood that you'll find from a person like me, then I have five grams of sugar in my blood. And if it goes to six grams, then it will be 120 milligram per 100 ml. And you diagnose me as pre-diabetic. And if I have seven grams, then I'm diabetic because my fasting blood glucose will be 140. So that means if you add just two grams of sugar, half a teaspoon of sugar to your coffee or tea, uh, that can raise your blood sugar to 140 milligram per 100 ml. That means at that time, your pancreas will begin to kick in and produce that insulin to take care of your blood sugar. So you are essentially waking up your stomach, your liver, your pancreas, and whole body. So that's why if you do the math and then think of what actually happens, then it makes sense to understand that even that tea or coffee with half a teaspoon of sugar or a little bit of cream is breaking your fast. What about if it's just a black coffee, Sachin? I just want to dig a little <laughs> deeper here. Let's say I, let's just say I love, co- I, to be honest, my morning coffee, um, I don't always have a double espresso. Sometimes I have a macchiato. There's a little bit of oat milk or something in there. So I understand that's probably going to throw you out of a fast. But let's just say it's a double espresso. Um, what do you think about that? Are we including that or are we taking that out? Yeah, I mean, see, the thing is, you know, you are a very healthy, uh, fit person. And um, a lot of us who are thinking about this black coffee thing, we are really healthy and fit. I'm talking about people who really need the fasting and they just cannot live. They think there are a lot of people who think that, hey, having tea with a, if in the UK or in India and in many parts of the country, uh, world, they will think that having a cup of tea with, uh, with uh, biscuit is not breaking my fast. In fact, when we interview people, when is your breakfast time? People will say, ah, eat at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning. And then if we ask, well, after you wake up, what do you eat or drink? Then they'll say that I have a cup of tea with milk mm-hmm. and with um, biscuit or something. So we're talking about those people. And they have to kind of understand what is breaking the, breaking the fast. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of us, having a, having a double espresso is actually not kicking our uh, pancreas to high gear to produce insulin. And that, as I said, uh, it, may not break our fast, um, we may continue our fast. I want to come to um, blood glucose and, and how time-restricted eating um, can be affecting various aspects of our health, particularly if we have sort of um, metabolic dysfunction or poor metabolic health. But while, while we're talking about healthy folks here, if someone is, let's say, lean, um, from a, a physiological point of view, all of their kind of biomarkers or risk factors are under control. Is there a benefit from eating within a, a shortened window? Um, would they be getting any benefit from time-restricted eating at all? Yeah, so there are a lot of people who complain about their sleep. So what we have, what you are seeing is um, both in animal studies and human studies, 
people who do eight to 10 hours time restricted eating, uh, the first thing they mention is they sleep much better. Um, and we don't understand the mechanism, but we are seeing that the sleep improves. Another thing that we also see is a lot of people who believe they're healthy, they don't have any metabolic syndrome, they don't have any metabolic disease, they might have acid reflux, they might, might have bloating, they have, might have indigestion once in a while. And that reduces their productivity. And what we are also seeing is all of these uh, digestive issues make them uh, much better. So, for example, personally, I used to have acid reflux and, um, you know, many acid reflux medications would be by my bedside and I would lose sleep sometimes. And after I started time restricting 10, 12 years ago, I haven't gone to, uh, I haven't bought any new <laughs> acid reflux medic- meds mm-hmm. uh, and I haven't used them. So this is one example where people actually will benefit. And second, and another thing is, you know, in long term, we all are healthy. We may be all healthy now. But if you think of what is what is our health goal, I used to say that if you can be healthy and without medication till your kids go to college or until you hit 50, that's actually a lofty goal. And you cannot do that unless you start planning very early. So time-restricted eating is almost like preparing for your retirement savings. It starts the day you start working. Mm -hmm. (laughs) From that day, you start Mm -hmm. saving. Similarly, to add those extra decades or decades of healthy life, um, people who are healthy, they should actually start doing this. Yeah, when when you break it down that way, it makes my question look a little silly because it would be like saying, should we eat a healthy diet today if we're otherwise healthy? Or should we just wait until we have have disease and then think about it? Um, so I think you answered that well. Thank you. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about blood glucose because you've mentioned that a few times, and you know a, a staggeringly high number of people have type two diabetes. There are many people with pre diabetes. Uh, I'm interested in how time restricted eating can be utilized as a tool to help better blood glucose control. So what's the kind of relationship between um, the time of the day, our meal and blood glucose control? And um, as an extension of that, perhaps you could speak to um, something that Emily and Courtney also spoke to, which is this idea of early time-restricted eating versus late time-restricted eating when it comes to to blood glucose control. And if someone has pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, what are some of the things that they um, – should be thinking about here? Yeah, so that's a very loaded question. So <laughs> I will, <laughs> I'll break it down. So, um, you know, when we think of circadian rhythm, we always think of connecting it to sleep, but actually circadian rhythms are much more intimately re- uh, related to blood glucose, the regulation of blood glucose, cholesterol, and fat. And um, let's begin with uh, what happens, how all of these are, Connected, And this is very important because, as you mentioned, nearly half of the adults in Western countries, particularly in the U.S., U.K., Australia, are either pre-diabetic or diabetic, uh, type 2 diabetic. And uh, this trend is also going up. So that means what we are doing 
um, as a as a society is something is very fundamentally wrong, and that may be this uh, eating randomly over a long period of time. Um, so as I said, in the morning, for example, when as soon as we wake up, if we eat, then at that time our pancreas is not ready to assimilate food in a way um, that our blood glucose remains healthy. Uh, one thing we have to keep in mind that we always say um, some diet is rich in protein, diet is rich in fat, but the bottom line is almost all food that we eat has some carbohydrate, uh, unless you are just eating pure oil or pure uh, meat. Uh, but for most of us, it contains some carbohydrates. So that's why avoiding meal for at least an hour or two in the morning will help. Um, in preparing our body, particularly our pancreas, to respond to that carbohydrate uh, in a healthy way um, in the morning. And the second is circadian rhythm research is also showing that the pancreas is much better in responding to food and secreting good amount of insulin to control our blood glucose, uh, say two hours after waking up to for the next six to seven hours or eight hours. So that means right. eating a good big meal in the first half of the day mm -hmm. is much better in controlling blood glucose because our digestive system and, in, and pancreas are better in handling uh, big meal. I think that's a, a, a really important point. Sorry, Sachin, just to reiterate yeah. something there. Um, given the number of people with poor blood glucose control that could benefit from this as a tool, um, I think this is worth kind of double clicking on because if you think about say intermittent fasting or the standard sort of eight hour protocol that became very popular, I know in speaking to a lot of people that that many people did a sort of midday to 8 p.m. style eating window. But from what you're saying, um, if you're wanting to get improvements in blood glucose control and if that's something that you're struggling with, it might be more beneficial to kickstart that eating window slightly earlier than that. Yeah. But not too early that right after you wake up, you should start eating. So have that two hours uh, wait time after waking up mm -hmm. and then try to eat um, around um, nine or 10 in the morning mm -hmm. if you can. Or if you're waking up too early, maybe even mm -hmm. eight o'clock is okay. Um, then there's another aspect that we often forget is, okay, so let's work on the end of the day. So what happens is, for most of us, um, our body begins to prepare for sleep by producing melatonin two to three hours before our bedtime. So that means uh, if I'm going to bed around, say, habitually around eight, 10 o'clock at night, then my body starts making melatonin uh, at eight in the evening. So melatonin, uh, for some, for nearly half of, half of the population, melatonin actually inhibits insulin release from pancreas. So that means if someone, if I have my dinner at seven o'clock and my blood glucose is still high, my pancreas is kicking to produce enough insulin to bring that blood glucose low, then insulin, sorry, melatonin comes in and inhibits that process so that um, my blood glucose can stay high for uh, several minutes or even an hour or two longer. So that's why having your last meal three hours before, at least three hours before bedtime, 
is a pretty good idea so that you uh, your body can um, kind of use that glucose without raising glucose, blood glucose too high. Would that mean, Sachin, um, sort of continuing that train of thought there, um, would, would that therefore mean if you're a shift worker and you are eating overnight, that it would be better through that shift to be around bright light so that you don't get that increase in, in melatonin as you're then eating those meals? Yeah, so if you're a shift worker and you want to, and your shift is ending, say, 7 or 8 in the morning and you're coming back home at 9, so then, um, your again, your last meal should be um, say around 4 to 6 o'clock in the morning so that you give yourself 3 to 4 hours, come back and have a nice dark room where you can sleep. And as you said, enough light so that melatonin remains low. Okay. And when we're thinking about um, the these sort of benefits with regards to blood glucose control or just big picture here, I think this idea of um, meal timing versus calorie restriction, inevitably it comes up a lot. And I'm sure this is a conversation you've had many, many, many times. And I know that Courtney Peterson's work, and she explained on our episode, um, showed improvements in blood glucose control that were independent of um, of weight loss, which was really interesting. Yeah, which which sort of suggests that um, at least in that study, those subjects had improvements in blood glucose control um, independent of actually uh, losing weight. So this kind of, I want to zoom in here a little bit on time-restricted eating versus calorie restriction. And I think the, the first question that I'd like to, to kind of throw at you, which is often overlooked, is... Um, I, as I understand it, time-restricted eating naturally leads to calorie restriction. And, and if I'm right there, I'm, I'm wondering, so in your studies when you, or, or in your colleagues' studies, when you get uh, humans to eat within a 10-hour eating window, um, what happens to calorie intake? How much, if at all, does it kind of fall by on average? Yeah, so there are two parts. One is in the laboratory condition when we do all the animal studies, we keep the calories constant. So the animals eat the same number of calories, whether they're eating randomly at random time or within time-restricted eating. Uh, so that's why um, the term time-restricted eating was coined because the calorie was not restricted, time was restricted. Right. When it comes to humans, um, since we all overeat, we are eating more calories than we need. Um, and mostly we eat more calories that we need by eating over a long period of time. It's not that we are squeezing all that calories into six hours and eating a 3000 kilocal meal. Uh, we actually eat extra because we eat late into the night or we eat too early in the morning or both. So as a result, when we reduce our eating window, then there are a few things happen. One is people report that, particularly when you eat within eight to 10 hours, people actually feel less hungry. So they are not craving for that food. So as a result, they eat less and they can reduce their caloric intake. And um, most many studies where this time restricting is being tested in those studies, people are overweight or obese. So that means 
for lifelong, they were eating more than what their body needs. And when you reduce that time window, then inadvertently they reduce their caloric intake by 10 to 20%. In some studies, 10%. In some studies, 20%. And uh, on an average, this is the group average 10 to 20% reduction. And then at the same time, you see all these improvement in glucose, blood pressure, and everything else. So people always assume that uh, the the effect of time restriction is mostly through caloric restriction. Uh, but as Courtney pointed out, and in many studies, um, if we look at individuals, then we do see individuals who are not reducing their calories, but they still see benefits. Mm-hmm. Then there is another aspect of this, that is not all diabetics are overweight or obese. Um, nearly one third of pre-diabetic and type 2 diabetics are actually within healthy weight range and they're still, uh, they cannot control their blood glucose level. And for them, the advice is not to reduce calories because they already have uh, normal weight. And if they reduce too much, then they may become dangerously underweight. So then the question is, for normal weight, um, people with pre-diabetes or diabetes is intentional caloric restriction or time restriction. Which one is going to work? And no one has done that study. So that will be an important study mm-hmm. to do to see whether these effects are there. One thing that we are also forgetting that, you know, diabetes doesn't come alone. It has its sinister friends. And I can, kind of in the last book and circadian diabetes score, I described that. Um, many diabetic patients, patients with diabetes also have hypertension or high blood pressure. Uh, many of them also have high cholesterol. They may be taking statins to control their cholesterol. Uh, and we know that nearly ha- um, a good proportion of people who take statins, they cannot tolerate it because uh, they have muscle pain. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, can time restriction help to... Uh, help for these people who are already uh, having telltale sign of pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, have hypertension, um, have high cholesterol, and they're on what we call polypharmacy. They're already taking more than two two or more medications. And can time restricting help? Because these guys have already gone through trying to do caloric restriction because the first line of lifestyle intervention, any physician will say, is eat less and move more. And they failed that. Mm-hmm. And in our study, what we're finding is, yes, these people, a lot of them can actually adopt time restriction. And when they do that, then their blood pressure regulation is much better. They can, mm-hmm. whether they are on medication or not on medication, they always see improvement in both systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And then uh, within, yeah. But what you just said is really, really important and worth emphasizing that for some people, counting calories hasn't worked. And it's actually, I see it as uh, a, a nice, um, we're in a nice position to have multiple tools here. And I think I've heard you yeah. say before that um, people often have great difficulty counting calories but counting time is much easier, if I recall correctly. I think that's a quote I heard from you. Yeah. So, for example, between you and I, I cannot 
I cannot count and tell you how many calories I have eaten today. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you exactly when I had my breakfast and even my lunch and snacks. Mm-hmm. So we are much better because we are designed to count time. So <laughs> we can count it. Um, yeah, so, uh, so these are some of the examples where it's not only controlling blood glucose, but with blood glucose misregulation, there are many other diseases that come with it. And time restriction can help manage those um, those conditions. And also, um, I must say that counting calories is important, particularly when you know someone is uh, eating say four thousand kilocal, and <laughs> there are there are a good chunk of population who actually overeat. They eat more than twenty five hundred kilocal, more than twenty five thirty percent of what they need, and uh, sometimes those extra calories are actually consumed late into the night or at random times. So time restriction actually can be a way to manage or to improve calorie restriction. Right. Um, so that's a new approach that even the, even card carrying researchers who do calorie restriction studies, they are coming to this understanding or coming to accept that time restriction can be in that toolbox to help people reduce calories. So tell me, with regards to kind of looking forward future research, I think it's you know you've you've made it clear here that time restricted eating can certainly help someone reduce calories, and there will be some benefit through that, absolutely. And that that can be a great thing for someone who's struggled counting calories. I don't think anyone's debating that. Um, you're also saying that your position is that there's some independent effects of. Uh, restricting your eating window independent of weight loss. And my question that I kind of would throw to you here is, given that there is debate out there that I'm sure you're aware of, what kind of study would it take or is there a study that you're excited by that would would see time-restricted eating potentially end up, let's say, in, in dietary or in lifestyle guidelines? I think it's already in lifestyle guidelines. I mean, uh, the... Uh, American Heart Association put a position statement several years ago uh, saying periodic fasting or overnight fasting is good. Mm-hmm. And um, even the calorie restriction researchers would accept the idea that one should not wake up in the middle of the night to eat a small amount of calories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that means they... Everybody accepts the fact that, yes, we should not eat for at least seven to eight hours when we're in bed. And nutrition scientists and gastroenterologists will also say that one should not eat one to two hours before going to bed because your core body temperature is high, you cannot sleep well, you cannot digest well food. So the bottom line is people accept the fact that one should fast or one should not eat for at least 10 to 12 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Then the other question is, okay, so um, is it, should people eat within 10 hours or should people just eat within that 12 to 13 hours and reduce calorie? And I think this is where um, the benefit is so little or the difference will be so little that you need to have a very large cohort, clinical trial, and also pick the right type of uh, target population who can uh, do this. The question is, 
is that worth it or should we do it in animal studies because in animals we can control many of this and in fact one of the mm-hmm. best animal studies addressing this was just published few weeks ago and i wrote a editorial in science sorry a preview in science about it and the experiment is very simple people know for almost now 90 years that rodents whether it's rats or mice if you reduce their caloric intake by 10 to 20% then mice live longer or rats live longer and that's the foundation for proposing caloric restriction to increase lifespan so now um few years ago almost um 6 7 years ago um scientists also figured out that the way the animal experiments are done um the caloric restriction studies are done they were inadvertently doing time restriction because the control mice would be given say 10 grams of food or x number of food amount of food and that's they consume throughout day and night because food is in the food hopper they have access to food all the time and then the researchers would come back and calculate how much food the mouse ate and they would put 70% or 80% of that diet in one meal at one time in the late mm-hmm. afternoon or evening and then mice would eat that within 2 to 4 hours and then for the rest 20 hours they were fasting mm-hmm. so practically they were doing both caloric restriction and time restriction at the same time so then the question was whether how much of that lifespan expect extension was due to calorie restriction and how much was due to time restriction so that became very clear that this is an important question to ask so the experiment was not very easy to do because we had to design a lot of engineering tools to feed mice tiny amount of food throughout day and night so uh these researchers they brought mice and then divided them to many different groups one group got to eat whenever they wanted and they figured out how much they lived they reduced the calories and then fed them in i think 9 or 10 equal meals throughout 24 hours so they didn't have any time restriction but they have caloric restriction and by doing this they found that these mice live 10% longer so that's very clear that by caloric restriction you can make mice live 10% longer and there was no time restriction because in every 3 hours these mice were eating something now they said okay so instead of feeding them in every 3 hours if we feed them in every 80 minutes or 90 minutes and give them the same amount of food either during the day 12 hours or the night 12 hours then what happens or if we do them if we feed them in day 2 hours and night 2 hours then what happens what they found was when the mice ate within 12 hours during the day when they are even not supposed to eat then they lived 20% longer so that means time restriction alone without aligning to the right time even extended their lifespan another 10% mm-hmm. so now they ask okay so what happens if the mice are given the same amount of food but in night time because mice are nocturnal theirs their circadian rhythm is designed so that they have to eat at night and when they fed them at night time they found that the mice lived 35% longer so now imagine 
Caloric restriction alone extends lifespan by 10%. Any kind of time restriction day or night can extend lifespan another 10%. And if you align the time restriction to the right time of the circadian cycle, then you can get another 15% benefit. Right. That experiment, I think, uh, nicely answered this question that in animals, at least, this kind of lifespan extension happens. Now, if you circle back and ask, what happens in human experiment and what did they find in mice? One interesting thing was they found all these mice that had caloric restriction, whether at daytime, nighttime, or throughout 24 hours, they had the same exact body weight. They all lost weight. They had the same exact muscle mass, the same exact fat mass, and this similar, very similar level of insulin. So that means your weight loss, your muscle mass, your fat loss, all of this that result from time restriction or caloric restriction is not going to predict what is going to happen to lifespan, what is going to protect you from disease. So that remained unanswered. So the question, the answer is yes, we cannot just look at weight loss as an outcome in human studies in caloric restriction or time restriction and say, hey, <laughs> there is no contribution of time restriction. Right. Or so, so fortunately, the experiment is done in animals. But we don't know what to measure in human to compare the benefit of time restriction plus calorie restriction versus calorie restriction alone. Mm, that was my question. So, short of kind of running a trial for for many many decades, um, what would be a biomarker or something that you could yeah. measure to say, hey, look. TRE is affecting this marker, which we know is is predictive of longevity, but calorie restriction is not. Um, and it gets me thinking, if we circle back, there was a word that we, we spoke about before, autophagy, and that often comes up in this conversation. And one of the questions that I was sent from people in the community was, you know, autophagy seems a little bit abstract. Is it actually um, something that you can, if you look, take a peek under the hood, can you objectively measure it? Yeah, it's really hard to say. And also, we should not think that autophagy is always good because, in fact, in cancer, we have to stop autophagy. We have to reduce autophagy because cancer cells do excessive autophagy to recycle and grow. So mm-hmm. I think the point is we, sh- we can just use common sense. If we take, you know, our, our body essentially is a function of 10 or 12 critical organs that function. Um, If we measure all these functions, bone mineral density, for example, for bones, muscle mass, muscle strength, then lung function, liver function, adrenal function, reproductive function, all of this, and then come up with a massive questionnaire and measurement tools. Then we can ask, okay, those are the health outcomes. Then participant bottom, whatever you do at the end of the day, if the participant has to work a lot to figure out what he or she has to do, then that particular lifestyle is not going to be scalable at a population health level. So that's the second aspect. And then the third aspect is the economy of scale. 
how much time and how much energy how much resources are to be spent to make one person stick to that lifestyle we know that for example diabetes prevention program which emphasizes on reducing calories eating better food and doing more exercise that has a price tag and you know depending on the technology it, it has gone from $4000 a year to $1400 a year so similarly we have to come up with a price tag how much it takes to educate an average joe what is time restricting and what is sensibly this person can do so if you take health biomarkers or outcomes then participant burden and the and then the financial cost to the society or to the person then we ask okay so what can we do to improve health whether calorie restriction alone time restriction alone or a combination of even three time restriction calorie restriction with better diet and i think that would be the answer optimum diet mm-hmm. um just enough calories within an optimum time window but i guess what will happen is some people can adopt one two or three and the 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 responsibility of scientists and clinicians is to give these options and make sure right. that these options each individual or the combination of two or three uh can benefit a person mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a really um interesting way of looking at this because it often feels like one threatens the other with regards to researchers working on different areas or just people in the public that are sort of passionate about one of these and I get it you know <laughs> there someone has a personal anecdote let's say for example they did a, a, a shortened window and they lost 50 pounds and then the next person counted their calories and lost 50 pounds and they're both equally as passionate about those being yeah. the kind of best tools um, but I think it's a really interesting proposition to think about I would hypothesize that if you could improve diet quality and get people eating over less hours that calories would be significantly um, lower per day on average um i want to come back to the protocol a little bit more because we spoke about that 10 hour window sort of 9 a.m to 7 p.m being something that that might be achievable for many people um Recently, I heard a colleague of yours, uh, I think you've published a few papers with him, Dr. Volta Longo, uh, express his kind of thoughts about fasting for more than 12 hours. And he, he didn't seem to be a, a big fan of that. And a 10-hour eating window, I guess, is a, is a 14-hour fast. And there are probably people listening here that have, that have heard um, Dr. Longo sort of express his opinion on that. And, and I wondered sort of where you land there. What is the what did he say? Well, I think he said that he 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 doesn't think for longevity it's optimal to be fasting for more than 12 hours a day. Is there any data? Not the question. Yeah, well, that wasn't that wasn't shared so I, I think that's a great yeah, question, so that, but one has to be objective, you know. A lot of people have their opinion and uh, I cannot answer. I cannot address just somebody's opinion. Um because if there is scientific fact then I can go back and see whether the point is almost every animal studies that did caloric restriction even his own early caloric restriction studies they actually fed the animals for less than 6 hours and all of them lived longer than mice that ate healthy diet for longer than 12 hours okay so if 
if there's thousands of caloric restriction studies, it's not one or two, it's literally thousands mm-hmm. because this has been going on for 90 years. If they have shown again and again and again that feeding mice for less than 12 hours in multiple labs, in male and female, in multiple strains, in mice, in, fly, in, uh, in rats, and even in monkeys, if they're not adversely affecting health, then there is no point to discuss this uh, based on one opinion. Okay. Yeah. So, so I guess I could rephrase that. You're in, <laughs> and 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 you've. I mean, you've already made it clear. But what you're saying is, you think a ten hour. There's there's no reason to think a ten hour eating window is not safe. Would be an, uh, a better way for me to kind of position that. Um, and also another thing is, we actually th- there was a study done. Vince, there was a study done in Europe where they tried twelve hours time restricted eating. And it did not improve any health indices for people who were unhealthy. So the experiment has already been done. And it doesn't improve health. One question that comes up here a little bit is how much of this research has been done uh, on females and different different ages, different life stages. I know there's a, again, this is an opinion that I've seen out there and has been shared with me by a lot of people. So I'm not getting you to comment on um, the opinion so much, but more um, your sort of uh, feel for the evidence that that exists out there and where you land. Um, but there is a doctor that has been um, sharing information online stating that there the the TRE studies haven't really included many women sort of aged 40 and over, I believe, and that she doesn't believe that time-restricted eating is kind of healthy for um, women of that age. How do you how do you sort of feel about that? Again, that's an opinion, and you know it's good that we have to include more women in studies, and we got to see whether they will benefit or not. Uh, but mm-hmm. the animal studies have again shown that uh, both young, middle-aged, and also a little bit older female animals still benefit from time-restricted eating. And in fact, for in animals, time-restricted eating extended their reproductive lifespan. So that means these animals were still ovulating at the older age when the early-fed mice have stopped ovulating. And then in our studies, what we have found is uh, female mice who were eating within nine hours, they were completely protected from endotoxin shocks, um, which is similar to bacterial infection. So in our study, what we found is Male mice that were ad limitum fed, nearly half of them, more than half of them died when they're challenged with endotoxin shock, and nearly one third died when they did time restricted eating. The female mice, on the other hand, all 100% of them were completely protected. None of them died if they had done time restricted eating. So that's again another example. It means people always, you know. People are stuck with this idea, their personal opinion and <laughs> their conviction and the thing that, okay, women cannot lose weight, older women, and it will not help. But the thing is, people have to be a little bit open-minded. And then, that, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good question to ask that, yes, there should be more women in clinical trials. And in fact, there are many, in many of our studies also, we have included women, but the I must say that the 
number is not large enough to do statistical analysis mm-hmm. on individual gender and then uh, mm-hmm. figure out whether it's good or bad. What we have seen is many women, they want to try all at the same time. And they also want to get most out of it. So then what they end up doing, they will try to do four to six hours of time-restricted eating. So they are fasting for 20 to 18 hours. They want to reduce calories significantly. So the only thing they eat is salad and a few other nuts or something. At the same time, they want to run a marathon. And... Then what ends up happening is they are more likely to become amenorrheic and more likely to have low bone mineral density and brittle bones. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. And it's actually, there is a syndrome called relative energy deficit in sports. And uh, REDS is more prevalent among women, but also there are many men uh, who succumb to REDS. So we have to keep that in mind that maybe some people took it to too extreme and they are the ones who might have suffered. And it's always those few other data that <laughs> complicate the field. You mentioned there uh, the, the kind of uh, mice studies that have, that have had uh, male and females. And, and I think some people might be thinking about the kind of uh, reliability of translating findings in that research to human research. Um, and I know that you're a big proponent of, of multiple lines of, of evidence, but just with regards to circadian biology and thinking about hours, um, is the circadian clock in a, in a, in a mouse, because I think we kind of glossed over this, but is it similar? Is it a 24-hour clock and, and thus those eating windows in those experiments are quite easy to kind of translate to, to human eating windows as well? Yeah, the clocks are very similar. And in fact, most of the clock genes and the mechanisms are identical or well conserved between mouse and humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, metabolism, we all know that there is um, some differences. So for example, uh, 14 hours fasting in mice may be uh, a little bit, should be equivalent to more longer fasting if we just think about the if you're thinking only about glycogen depletion or uh, fat oxidation Um, but many circadian best parameters so for example when i say um, gut repair um, or there is a time window on which within which the gut has to repair or there's a time window in which the insulin producing cells are more active all of those mechanisms are very similar between human and mouse. So that's why we have to keep that in mind that, well, there are some aspects of metabolism, those are different, but when it comes to repair, rejuvenation, reset, these are very similar. I'll give you an example. How much do you think a mouse, little mouse that is 30 grams, that weighs 30 grams, runs every night? How many meters or kilometers you think? Oh, gosh, a little mouse. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to guess 1.5 kilometers. A mouse can run somewhere between seven to 12 kilometers every night. Gosh. So that means <laughs> I should run between here and San Francisco every night if I mm. extrapolate that. Well, you know, that doesn't right. extrapolate that way linearly. Many things don't ex- extrapolate linearly. So in that sense, yes, as the animals are smaller and smaller, they actually have different metabolism. Just think of the hummingbird. 
how much it has to fly to get tiny nectar. So in that way, there are differences. Um, but when it comes to circadian rhythm or circadian related stuff, then there are similarities. In fact, a few years ago, we did a very simple experiment. We asked, does the benefit of time restoring depend on circadian clock, which is a very you know, counterintuitive experiment to do from my lab because we always think of circadian rhythm. Uh, but what we found is, yes, it does actually benefit even mice that don't have circadian clock because of genetic defect. And the reason is this, why we did this experiment. There are many genetic models of mice and laboratory animals that also succumb to similar metabolic disease as humans do. And as genetic testing is becoming more and more widespread, we always, we often blame it on our gene. We say, hey, I'm diabetic because it runs in my family. I cannot help it. But actually the point is, if you have a faulty gene, then you can adopt good lifestyle to reduce the adverse effect of that faulty gene. And this is very important when it comes to a healthy lifestyle. The healthy lifestyles are actually something that we can do to address our faulty gene because we cannot change our genes, but we can change our lifestyle. And when we change our lifestyle, we can significantly reduce the risk for many diseases. So that's why we did the experiment. But the bottom line is, yes, even time-restricted eating can override faulty genes that make mice obese, diabetic, or even have cardiovascular disease. Repair, rejuvenate, reset has come up a few times here. And uh, something that I think people might be thinking about is the longer that I'm fasting, do I get more compounding benefits with regards to repair, rejuvenation, and resetting the system, so to speak, and you know, online you'll 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 see people um, posting about doing twenty four hour water fasts. You'll see people talking about three day water fasts. Uh, I'm interested in sort of hearing from you. Is is the longer the better, or is there a kind of sweet spot where you kind of maximize benefits and beyond that it could even be deleterious? I think I, this is where I want to bring dental care into picture. So, for example, if Brushing your teeth once a day is like 12 hours time restricted eating and brushing your teeth twice is like 10 hours time restricted eating and flossing and brushing is eight hours time restricted eating and then going to your dentist once in every six months is kind of doing water fasting once in a while. Are you going to go to your dentist every week? Will that improve your dental health to get your <laughs> teeth really scrubbed and drilled? No, I mean, this, this is exactly where we have to do some common sense. The reason is, you know, this is where we can also go talk about reds because reds is actually an extreme form of being super conscious about your health where people mm -hmm. exercise more, eat less, and then they become, uh, they also develop many psychiatric and affective disorders and neuroendocrine disorders. So, I guess anyone from 10-year-old to 100-year-old can eat within 12 hours. And a lot of us can try to eat within 10 hours so that at least for half of the days or five days in a week, we can eat within 10 hours, which is like brushing your teeth twice a day. And then 
if you want, maybe once in a while, it's a good idea to do even uh, like Walter Longo's fasting mimicking diet, four or five mm-hmm. days of very low calorie diet once in a while, or water fasting for 24 hours. So the idea is that is there are many different ways of fasting. One thing is we have to think about a lifestyle. Lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and exercise every single day. And lifestyle is very different from intervention. Intervention is when you do something for a few days and then go back to your lifestyle. So that's why your lifestyle should be, say, 10 hours target. And once in a while, if you want to do some intervention to, for example, if you want to reduce your inflammation because your joints are swollen and you cannot uh, function well when you climb stairs, you have pain, then maybe... Pay attention to your sleep. Try to get eight to nine hours of sleep for a week. And on the same time, try some longer fast. And that may help. Very sound advice. Um, Coming to the end here, I'm interested in your thoughts on lifespan in humans. I've heard you speak about um, the potential benefit of time-restricted eating, um, reducing the the kind of incidence of cancer and and CVD, the, the top two killers. So, I'm just kind of interested in big picture here, um, how you see this sort of affecting public health and, and lifespan. And the biggest challenge now is how to reduce the burden of chronic disease. Because if we think of um, any, if you ask a 50-year-old, like, you know, I went to my daughter's graduation from high school and I looked around to see how many parents are there who are approaching 50 or about 50, around 50 and they look healthy and it is very depressing to see see that. So now we know that nearly 50% of adults have pre-diabetes or diabetes. 50% are hypertensive and one in three have fatty liver disease that will progress towards NAS or even liver cancer at one point. Um, there are nearly 80 million prescriptions written for uh, acid reflux and heartburn and the millions more who just consume over-the-counter medication. So I think those are the things that we have to tackle first because you cannot, it's just asking, is your car going to run till the moon, so which is 250,000 miles, um, if it uh, if you don't change the tire, if you don't change the oil at the regular time. So I think time restricting should help to reduce the burden of chronic disease that affect almost all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first goal. And then the second is, which we still don't understand, means we talk about longevity a lot. But in reality, many of the, even the laboratory experiments are not done on older mice or older animals. Um, let's accept it. For the first time in human history, we are living more number of years if we use females as a as a yardstick, as a benchmark. Women are living more number of years in the postmenopausal state than in the reproductive states, reproductive mm-hmm. years. And we don't have even enough research to say what will keep a mouse healthy in that old age. So I guess people who say that we can do this to keep humans live for more than 100 years with one healthy lifestyle, 
the maybe a little premature. I guess at the end of the day, it will be a combination of many things. It will be, of course, sleep, circadian sleep, some physical activity, um, respecting your circadian rhythm by time distributing will form foundation. But on top of that, we also need to understand what are the hormones, what are the micronutrients, what are the macronutrients that we need to change at older age and combine them with this foundation of health to to live longer. But in the short term, I guess, time restraining will help us to reduce the burden of disease. And it's a huge lofty goal because in the US, when somebody goes from healthy to diabetic, type 2 diabetic, then the annual cost of total healthcare cost goes up by $9,000 a year. And if there are 94 million people who are pre-diabetic and um, over the next five to six years, nearly 50% or so will slowly transition towards type 2 diabetic. If we delay diabetes in just a million people, then that's for one year, that's $9 billion in savings. And if you can delay that in 10 million or 20 million or 30 million people for X number of years, then we are talking about redirecting that healthcare spending towards other things. So on a macroeconomic level, these kind of lifestyle changes, which can be scaled up at population level, can move the needle to keep mm-hmm. the nation, to keep the society more healthy. And then we'll think about the longevity question. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, uh, Sachin, thank you so much. This has been really, really informative and I think very, very empowering uh, for, for myself and, and for the listeners. So I really appreciate your time and um, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing and for all of the work that you've done. Before I, I get you to uh, give us uh, a bit of a rundown as to where people can find you and, and information about your various books, etc. Is there anything that you feel like we missed or that you wanted to kind of say today that we, we didn't get to? No, I think we covered almost everything in mind that uh, most people will find useful. And thank you so much for uh, doing this because, you know, we scientists are not very good in communicating our science to people who will benefit from it. And thank you for being that important link between science and people who need this. Oh, thank you. Those are very kind words. I've, I've seen your TED Talks, so uh, I beg to, to differ. I think you're doing a great job with the science communication as well. Um, for folks who want to who read more, learn more, um, uh, stay in touch with, with future research that you bring out, where's the best place to kind of direct them? Well, I'll be soon uh, back to my Twitter feed. <laughs> so I'll be active in Twitter. And we also have an app called My Circadian Clock, uh, which is available in both iOS and Android. And that's not commercial. That's entirely used for research purposes. So there is no advertising. There is no um, email <laughs> storm. And uh, we are learning a lot about people's lifestyle and also what are the barriers to adopting good lifestyle, which is mm-hmm. even much more important because if we don't understand the barriers, then we cannot address uh, how to change the needle, how to move the needle. Um, I also have a couple of books, uh, The Circadian Code, which gives a broad understanding of circadian rhythms, and The Circadian Diabetes Code, which came out last year, which is more focused on um, glucose control and its complications. Um, mm-hmm. And our website, mycircadianclock.org, also has a lot of blogs and patient stories. Um, and of course, we 
uh, our team is involved in many parallel research going on and almost in every couple of months we have something new coming out and um, those are all on our website okay well let's uh let's stay in touch and uh i'm sure i speak on behalf of all of the listeners we'd love to have you back on and uh, learn more from you as uh, future studies are published thank you so much Sachin. thank you have a perfect circadian day thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation i hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive if you did and you'd like to show your support for the show please subscribe to our youtube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.